Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa, and I'm co-host of the channel along with Robert Talese, Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books, drawing from a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Nancy Bauer, Professor of Philosophy and Dean of Academic Affairs for Arts and Sciences at Tufts University. Her new book, How to Do Things with Pornography, is just out from Harvard University Press. What are the allowable limits on pornography in a democratic society? What justifies the claim that, as Bauer puts it, any right you have to not be offended by what turns me on is dwarfed by my right to privacy? In her new book, Bauer considers the sexual objectification of women in in contemporary society from several different angles. The sense of empowerment that young women feel in today's hookup culture, the mistaken, on her view, reading of J.L. Austin's work on language that informs prominent feminist critiques of pornography, and the backdrop of a predominantly white and male profession of academic philosophy. Bauer offers a radical new reading of Austin and uses it to argue for a better critical stance regarding pornography and its role in human life. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Nancy Bauer. Are you there? I am. Hi, Carrie. Hi. Uh, nice to talk with you um, and welcome you to New Books in Philosophy. Thank you so much. It's delightful to be here. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Um, yeah, so we're going to talk about pornography, but also about uh, the hookup culture and J.L. Austin and, you know, the state of professional academic philosophy today, about which you have a lot of interesting and critical comments to make on, on all of those um, issues. Um, before we get into the, the book 
um, as such. Um, maybe you can give us a little bit of background about yourself, how you how you got to philosophy, how you came to the areas of philosophy that you that you work in, and and how you came to the writing of this particular book. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, I'm always surprised at how circuitous most people's paths to philosophy are. I think of mine as definitely circuitous. Um, I was not a philosophy major as an undergraduate. Instead, I spent probably 75% of my time at the my college's daily paper, and I was the managing editor for it. Um, I wanted nothing more than to be a journalist. I did a little bit of studying in social theory. I took one course in philosophy. Uh, this was at Harvard that I absolutely couldn't stand. It was just a, a sort of basic undergraduate course in normative ethics. Um, and I didn't think anything more of it. Um, I became a reporter for the Boston Globe when I was right out of college. In fact, I'd started working for them in the summer after my junior year and had worked for them all through my senior year and also and continued on. Um, and after I had done that um, for a while, I started to feel unsatisfied by it. I did a lot of stories on how um, on, on little children who died tragically, or sometimes older children who died tragically. I, I got known for doing those stories. I was often sent to cover them. And uh, there was one case in which I was asked to um, interview neighbors around a um, family um, that was from Southeast Asia um, whose child, whose three-year-old child had, while their infant was unattended, stabbed the infant to death with a knife that was on the kitchen table. I tell you this story because it has a huge effect on me. Yeah. Um, And I was supposed to, you know, go ask the neighbors, is there anything wrong with this family? And it was absolutely clear that this was an outrageous question to ask. I couldn't do it. And I went back to the Globe and I wrote a story based on calling a whole bunch of psychiatrists and asking what could be done for this little boy as he grew up um, with this event in his past. Mm-hmm. Um, and it actually made the front page and everybody liked it. But I thought to myself, what am I doing? Why? I, this seems like a horrible thing to do. Um, so eventually I left the Globe and I took a job at Children's Hospital in Boston And I wrote a book about child health for parents uh, with some other people. And we wrote these books by interviewing doctors at Children's and also doing research in Countway Medical Library. And almost all of the um, stuff that I wrote on was in the area of mental health. And it had been about, I don't know, three to five years since there had been a massive change in the way that insurance companies accounted for um, claims by um, uh, per, uh, healthcare providers. <laughs> it used to be the case, you know, ages ago that you would, um, somebody was sick and the doctor would write on a form, you know, uh, this little child uh, that has a runny nose and their throat hurts and they have a fever of 102 um, and send that off. Um, and starting, I think, in the... Um, late 70s, early 80s, these things called um, diagnosis-related groups or DRGs came into existence and people had to simply check off these boxes. Um, you know, so-and-so has, you know, a rhinovirus or whatever. And when I was interviewing the doctors in the mental health unit called Judge Baker Guidance Center at Children's, 
I was really struck by how many of them volunteered that since these diagnosed related groups had come into being, they found that children um, were that were developing sort of more symptoms in a syndrome that was named in these groups. So, for example, um, if where they had once been able to write, you know, Johnny sometimes switches his P's and B's, uh, they were now writing um, that someone had dyslexia. And all of a sudden, they were finding more and more children with a much broader range of symptoms than they had before. Um, and doctors who were dealing with children with um, autism symptoms were also saying that uh, more and more children were being diagnosed with autism. And I found this absolutely rivetingly fascinating. And in my ignorance about anything philosophical, I thought, oh, this sounds like an ethical thing. So I started going to ethics rounds at Children's Hospital. At that time, this was in the mid-1980s, there were people... Um, running ethics rounds in hospitals who were often chaplains, um, who were the, still at that point uh, very much uh, the main people in day-to-day uh, -day medical ethics. Medical ethics was really at that point just getting off the ground as a, as a discipline or as a sub-discipline. Um, and the guy who ran the ethics rounds was a professor at both Harvard Divinity School and Harvard School of Public Health. And we got to know each other and he said, look, you know, you're really interested in ethics um, why don't you come to the medical ethics program at Harvard Divinity School? And you have to take a few, a bunch of courses in the, in the Master of Theological Studies program there, but really you'd have two years to take any kind of courses you want at any point or all around Harvard. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was a really good deal, even though I wasn't really interested in divinity, though I loved being in divinity school. I was very, very happy the whole time I was there. Mm -hmm. And my first semester there, I took um, an ethics course with Roderick Firth, whom I absolutely loved, um, and I was kind of hooked. And my second semester there, I wandered into a graduate seminar taught by Stanley Cavell, who was developing um, an understanding of melodrama in film. And then I was really, really hooked. And uh, there's a long story that follows this, but eventually I uh, was able to be uh, admitted to that PhD program. And I always felt like I had kind of come in through the back door. I'm almost, almost literally... Um, and that my um, uh, and I was older than a lot of the other graduate students. So my idea at that time was I would finish this PhD in philosophy and then I'd go back to journalism, mm -hmm. which I still really liked. But I would go back to journalism and be able to write much more thoughtful pieces. And I really, really, really love teaching. <laughs> and uh, I had two children in graduate school. By the time I finished my dissertation, I was thirty-seven, and I still could have gone into journalism. I had a lot of contacts still, but I just decided, you know, um, I think I'll try for a job. And I was very lucky um, to um, to have a chance on the job market. And I took this job at Tufts University, where I have been ever since 1998. Um, so this particular book is though not in medical ethics, right, obviously. Um, how did you get to – because – I mean, you mentioned Cavell, but an, and he figures in the book, but also Simone de Beauvoir, obviously, the, the second sex, and there's that influence. Um, um, how did you get to the, the feminist philosophy part? That's a great question, and, and yeah, nothing I told you would indicate where <laughs> that came from. Some of it was, um, I mean, I always had the view that um, women could do anything that men could do, and that there was no reason to... Um, think otherwise. And I was very naive when I went to college thinking that, you know, I would have no barriers in my way. And a lot of things happened. Um, 
that really had shored up my feminism. Um, at the Boston Globe at that time, um, com- the computing devices uh, that, that, that at the time I was working there, using computing devices to um, to uh, file your story was pretty new. Um, most people did not have personal computers at this point. And um, we still use telephones. The telephones didn't have voicemail on them. If you were on the line, they didn't have call waiting. So when you were doing a story at your desk and calling people, you would get a lot of phone messages that people would take. And in order to get your that sort of a secretarial pool really would take and they would stick them in your mailbox. And the, where the reporters were and the, where the mailboxes were required a walk in front of a very long city desk in which many men from so-called copy boys all the way up to the metro editor would sit usually something like eight at a time. And you would walk past the city desk in order to get your messages mm-hmm. and not uh, infrequently, they would have stacks of paper in front of them and each paper would have a number on it, like one through 10, like the Olympics. And as you walked by, they would hold them up like mm-hmm. Olympic judges. And you didn't know, is it boob day? Is it butt day? Is it, you know, whatever it was. And, and this was at around the time that, um, sexual harassment law was beginning to be discussed actually by people like Catherine McKinnon, who was huge in, in getting this sexual harassment law um, on the books. I didn't know anything at this point about McKinnon. I didn't know what the state of sexual harassment law was, but my consciousness was such that, and this was true, I think, of everyone. Um, I felt ashamed. I felt irritated. I felt helpless. Sometimes I felt angry, but I could, I didn't have a word or concept or a, a, a way of looking at the world that would help me to make sense of what was happening in a way that I could live with. And I think this was true of all the other women who were working there too. I also had an experience where one of the city editors insisted, I, I usually had to walk a long distance to get to the, um, subway stop that would take me back to where I lived because the one that was close to the globe was being renovated um, at the time that the event I'm about to tell you about happened. And the city editor absolutely insisted on taking me home. And instead he took me out to dinner and I couldn't figure out how to say no. And he explicitly said, you know, basically he said, if you sleep with me, I could get you a permanent job on the New York times. This was while I was still an intern. Um, he tried to break into my apartment. And the next day when I went back to the Globe, I talked to, you know, what I thought were much older women. They were probably in their late 20s. Most of them are still working for the Globe, actually. Um, and I said, this thing happened to me with this guy. I don't know what to do. And they said, oh, it's happened to all of us. You know, just, just you know, just say no to him. And, and I was really stunned. So I went and told the city editor, look, or actually, I think it was the regional or the metro editor. And I said, look, da, 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 this happened to me. And he was... He looked at me and he nodded. He was a a, a real old uh, New England salt, a man of few words. He just nodded. And the next day, um, the city editor was actually moved to a different place. And a few days after that, I was called in by the head editor of the Globe and told that I was fired. And a few weeks after that, they said, oh, no, actually, sorry, you can come back. Uh, but, of course, that incident had a huge effect on me. And I had other cases of things at work, um, in, even in the job at Children's, where I was just really stunned by how women were treated. And I also was noticing that I would say something and then a man uh, would say exactly the same thing and my thing had been ignored, etc. And that right. created a very strong feminist consciousness in me. 
Yeah, I mean, it's. I mean, we we'll get to this. I I hope towards the end because I do want to get to the the you know, your reading of Austin and, and so forth. But um, you know, you do have a, a, a interesting discussion uh, of of uh, contemporary you know academic philosophy where you know not so different stories. I mean, have been surfacing in re- recent years, and it's it's kind of uh, irritating to see the same sort of thing happening. Uh, in a very different uh, environment, um, and many decades later. But yes. Lenny, well, you you start the book. I mean, you mentioned about consciousness raising, and um, so the, in the in the initial chapters, um, uh, you talk basically about uh, today's hookup culture um, among young women, um, and uh, it's. Can you say something about, you know, I mean, it's, it's kind of puzzling. I mean, it's not a, it's not a new phenomenon, uh, that, that, that there are certain puzzles that this, you know, that the hookup culture raises for, for lack of a better word, traditional feminists and, and what it means to be empowered. Um, because the young women, uh, involved, you know, say they do feel empowered, um, within this culture. Um, and and you explicitly state, you know, we need to believe them when they do say that they're empowered, um, which I think is is important. Um, although it's you know part of me and I assume other people are like sort of scratch our heads at that at that concept of empower, empowerment. So can you can you say something about those your discussion there about the hookup culture? Yeah. Um. I had no intention of writing about hookup culture, except that what happened is starting in the um, early 2000s, I just had a whole bunch of students come and start talking to me about it. Um, it started with um, somebody coming to me and asking me to sign a petition um, to against the school newspaper at Tufts, the Tufts Daily, because they had run what the, what, this student and a number of other students thought was a really offensive profile of a student, a male student writing about how he um, selected his targets for hookups um, during the week and got them to be interested in him. Um, so, and then his rules for hooking up, like he wouldn't hook up with any girl who had thrown up or who this or that. Um, and I said, I don't have a problem with their publishing this because <laughs> it gives us uh, an opportunity to be appalled and horrified and shocked and and angry. Um, and it turned out actually that this was a composite of three different boys. But I said, I, I don't want to sign a petition about this, but I would like to sponsor a kind of open forum for students to discuss it. So to my big surprise, a very large uh, number of students came, even though it was kind of reading period right before exams at the end of the spring. And the things that they said really made a huge impact on me. Um, One woman said, I really like hooking up because you get all the benefits of a relationship without the commitment. And that really struck me because I thought, wow, you would think that commitment was a kind of, you know, central piece of the notion of a relationship. Um, another woman was, was assuming that I was going to be, I don't know, prudish or somehow negative or, um, condescending, critical of hookup culture. And so she was really vociferously talking about how great it was to just go and have her satisfactions. And 
But then she said a couple of things that really shocked me because she was constantly talking about giving guys blowjobs. And I said, well, what about the other way around? Does, do you, does, do you have guys give you oral sex? And she said, um, oh my God, no, I would never want to do that. It's gross down there. And that completely flipped me out. So, um, and there were a couple of other comments that got made that at one point I said, do you use condoms, you guys, when you, um, um, give guys oral sex and the women all, everybody looked at me as though I'd said, do you use condoms when you, uh, go out to get ice cream? Like it right. was just a category change. And, <laughs> and there was one other, um, non student there at, who was the head of the women's center. And she stood up and she literally just ticked off with no introduction, a list of all of the diseases and problems you could get from having unprotected oral sex if you were the on the on the receiving end and they were shocked people said that can't be true and i was amazed at what they didn't know so that's how it got started um and then because that had happened all these other people started coming and talking to me um it was almost um it was funny in a way because i had never intended to write about this stuff and it became more and more obvious to me that i needed to so what what do you make of the the sense of empowerment there? Doesn't it? I mean, your your question about you know, do you get any yourself after giving them you know these blowjobs um, and her expression of disgust? Um, I mean, that strikes me as like how how could that be empowering? That's that's my question, and I, I I'm you know maybe I'm just old fashioned. Uh, but yeah, I, I don't get it. Do you, do you get it? Well, I tried really hard. There's a sense in which I, I suppose there's a sense in which I don't, uh, get it. That is to say, um, it's not clear to me that the kind of empowerment that one feels during these, that sort of sense of empowerment that one might have is actually as, um, productive or long lasting as some women take it to be. But I did spend a lot of time asking women about this and I do have, um, some sense of it. First of all, um, there's been so much talk about safe sex and being careful. And a lot of sex ed is about that. There's not a lot of sex ed about how to give a woman an orgasm, which is, I think, um, if we speak frankly, can be more difficult um, than if for, a, say, a teenage girl or a young woman than uh, to come to orgasm than, a, um, than for a boy. Um, I, I don't know if that's a physiological fact. That's my sense of things from talking to a lot of people from my own experience. Um, and so, um, I think a lot of young women are really not clear on what, how to, how to make, how to have an orgasm during sex. Um, and so the idea, and also they're tremendously worried because actually porn culture has of course crept into the mainstream in many, many ways over the last 20 years. Um, they're worried that there's something revolting or smelly or whatever about their own uh, sex organs. And so, you know, one of the things that really shocked me that I found out in the early 2000s when I was first looking into this, and I'm sure for younger women philosophers, they'll think what I'm about to say is nuts, but I couldn't believe that it was started to become a standard thing for young women to remove all the hair um, um, on their vulvas. I was completely shocked by this. And I realized that the reason it happens is because porn culture had crept into kind of everyday life. Now, of course, in porn movies, for example, 
Um, you would have, you know, just a little bit of hair or no hair at all, in part maybe to make um, women look like little girls. But I also think just so the camera can see, get the action without all this hair in the way. Mm-hmm. And more and more male porn stars started to be hairless. Um, but I think this idea that your vagina is somehow gross and there's something not gross about a penis has uh, is is... I heard this over and over and over again by a lot of women and it really surprised me. Um, so I think that's one thing, but the empowerment comes from, I, I, I feel after talking to a lot of women about this, like I'm not a social scientist. So this is based entirely on, uh, it's almost like I'm a reporter reporting what I've heard um, that women, when you are, uh, you know, kneeling, let's say at the feet of a guy at a party in a, in a closet or a bathroom or a bedroom or something who has um, a hard on, um, you feel powerful. You feel a rush of power. This guy really, really wants you to get him off and, and really wants you to do it, not to do it himself. And so there's a sense of um, that one has of, um, the, of, of power, I think, and I think that sense of power in some sense, in some ways, is real. I mean, you, it, it's, it's, it's. Um, what, what, what do I mean by that? I mean that women experience correctly that the man is desperately wanting them to give them a blowjob, um, and that they are the person who's there, the only person who's there to be able to do it. Um, and was one woman put it to me? You know, I could just get up and walk away. And when I then told other women that she said that, a lot of them said, yeah. And so I felt to myself, aha, there's a kind of sadistic pleasure or power. Uh, But then on the other hand, every single one I would say to them, okay, so then do you ever walk away? And they all said no. And I said, why? And they said, because, you know, that would like be a really crappy thing to do. And I also would ask them, did you get sexual pleasure out of giving this blowjob? No. So then I think like there's this kind of masochistic turnaround where the idea is I will endure this because I have an obligation. It would be really bad to walk away. Um, and so I may be completely wrong about that, although I have to say I have presented this work. I, all over, I used to think there was something just weird at Tufts. <laughs> I thought Tufts is so strange. And then I started like reading this work. And it was when I was in France and read a paper on this stuff and all of these young women came up to me and said, yes, that's what it's like. I was really stunned. Um, I'm sure there are some women who feel, um, who actually genuinely enjoy in a sexual or other way um, giving blowjobs. I'm not in any way suggesting that I know that no woman does. I don't. I'm just saying on the basis of the many conversations I've had on this, this is my understanding of the kind of phenomenology of it for young women. Wow. Wow. That's, that, that's a lot of food for thought. Um, <laughs> so, you know, not exactly, you know, academic food for thought, but, but that's okay because we, we have plenty of time for, you know, somewhat more uh, drier, I guess you might say um, questions. Um so let's get to, to objectification as such, as it's been uh, theorized. You know, famously, Martha Nussbaum has her um, article on objectification. Um, so maybe maybe we should start with that. You, you, you criticize her view as, as in some sense, uh, making it too, as you put it, I think, expansive. It just covers too much or something. Can you, can you say a bit about your critique of Nussbaum's uh, article? 
Sure. And um, I, I am very critical of this particular, of the way that this particular piece of writing has been, is a touchstone for almost all people who write about sexual objectification. Um, and it also, to me, epitomizes a, a, a way that analytic philosophers are inclined to proceed that I find um, really interesting. And in this uh, respect, I will start by saying that I think I would probably be rightly called a Wittgensteinian, but let me explain what I mean by that. So uh, to me, I, there are some things about Wittgenstein that I find essential in my way of understanding what I'm doing, uh, not everything. I wouldn't, I don't think of myself as uh, mostly taking my bearings, let's say from Wittgenstein, but on some things are rock bottom for me. And in this case, um, the way I put it is the way I think about what I learned from Wittgenstein is that um, it's like philosophers are looking at a real phenomenon, like something that really happens in the world. And so imagine this phenomenon is like a balloon um, that uh, they are holding or that's tied to something. And as they philosophize about it, it's like the balloon. Imagine it's a helium balloon just starts floating away and it goes higher and higher and higher and higher. And it starts to have very little in common with the balloon that was on the ground. Right. Um, but philosophers tend not to see that drift. So I think this happens in sort of paradigm cases in analytic philosophy. It also happens in continental philosophy, but and in other kinds of um, ways of proceeding. But in analytic philosophy, people, for example, will talk about the concept of knowledge. Um, and after a while, as the discourse goes on and on and on and on, you wonder what this concept of knowledge has in common with our ordinary concept of knowledge. And in fact, as my colleague Afner Baz at Tufts, who wrote a, a book called When Words Are Called For, um, has noted, I think, quite correctly, um, a lot of times the examples that people give of when we use the word knowledge in terms like knowledge are really, really contrived. We actually don't talk in those terms. Right. And when we do, we're not really talking about knowledge. Um, and so um, what I object to here is I think um, the notion of sexual objectification is something that one understands when one has what I call in a, I recognize philosophically imprecise way, but for me, that's okay. Um, when one has a, a worldview that includes the notion of sexual objectification, when one sees the world in terms of sexual objectification, to put this another way, or when sexual objectification is a term that's important for describing uh, the world from your perspective, um, so to put it another way, when one has a feminist point of view, then you don't need to have a fine-grained understanding of the concept of objectification per se. Um, and in fact, a fine-grained understanding of the word objectification per se is going to lead you astray. So what Martha does in this paper, which is really the, as I said, the touchstone for so many people who write about sexual objectification is she says, okay, we can talk about sexual objectification, but first we have to figure out what the marks and features of objectification are. And here are seven kind of marks and features, and some of sometimes a case of objectification will include numbers one, two, and four, and sometimes it will only include number seven, etc. And to my mind, what she does is simply change the subject. Um, I think the term loses its political power, the, the notion of sexual objectification. And what happens is a cottage industry gets spawned, which it did in this case. I know that's a mean term, but I think that philosophy tends to spawn uh, cottage industries. 
I don't exempt myself from any of this, by the way. I think it's a standing temptation where there are zillions of people saying, well, aren't there, you know, three more possible features of sexual objectification? There's da da da. So there are 10. And in this case, Nussbaum gets it kind of wrong and, and it goes on and on and on and on. And meanwhile, sexual objectification is still a problem in the world. Right. And philosophers haven't had anything to say about it that is, um, that is going, that is catching hold. Um, or that's useful. So that's really my um, criticism. As a piece of analytic philosophy, it's an excellent paper, which is why it's a touchstone for so many other philosophers. Okay, so um, I mean, this does feed into um, another issue that that comes to the fore uh, somewhat later in the in the book um, about the the role of pornography, you know, sort of in the culture and why why we even why we even have it. Um, uh, so let me, uh, you know, after, after your critique of Nussbaum, you have a number of chapters where you, where you sort of go into uh, Austin, uh, you know, J.L. Austin, you know, obviously related to, to the title of your book, um, or I should say your book is related to his title. Um, and then, you know, your critique, again, has, has a similar flavor in certain ways of the way feminist philosophers, you know, notably uh, Ray Langton, for example, her influential article, um, Appropriating Austin uh, to Critique Pornography. Um, but a lot of this has as a background. So let me just ask as a background, um, a view that you voice towards, uh, you know, later in, I think, perhaps Chapter 7 or Chapter 8, um, that, um, uh, you know, pornography, in a sense, is reflecting some sort of human need. I mean, it's pervasive for a reason. And, you know, every new medium that we have, whether it's words, whether it's film, you know, virtual reality is on its way. Uh, you know, all of these things, you know, from photographs and, you know, any, any sort of technology we have, uh, gets immediately appropriated for pornographic uses, which is like uh, it's it's a it's a phenomenon that you try to draw attention to. So maybe you can say a word about this um, this this sort of background criticism of the you know, sort of more targeted criticisms that you make of particular appropriations of Austin. Uh, in the anti-pornography literature? Sure. Um, that's kind of a big question, so take it in. Take, let, me, let me pick up on some things that you um, just said, all of which are correctly expressing my view. Um, I started out thinking I would write a book on pornography, and I would think about um, how photographs do what they do, for example, or how films do what they do. And... I still want to do that, but I never quite got there. This was a very, very hard book to write, although it looks as though probably um, it might not have been. There's a sense in which I raise a lot of issues and just leave them there. Um, but I think you're correct that I think that pornography, I think, let's put it this way, I think that looking at other people or experiencing other people having sex in some circumstances, whether or, or the representation of such is clearly arousing to lots of people. And it's clearly arousing to lots of people, including women, not just men. Um, and 
to not to pretend that pornography created that potential for arousal um, seems to me bizarre. On the other hand, it does seem to me absolutely correct that um, insofar as pornography is the only um, way that a kind of people's is can uh, in for so I'm oh, sorry. Insofar as pornography is as um, available as it is um, and is the only thing that we have that meets those kinds of sensory um, desires that apparently very large numbers of people have had for a very long time. Um, then I think it's um, bizarre not to pay attention to that when one is writing about pornography. So many anti-feminist anti-feminist anti-pornographic feminists write as though um, pornography was something is something that we could just in principle get rid of. Um, And to me, I find that a completely bizarre view. I do think it's a wonderful aspiration to get rid of um, misogynistic pornography, um, but um, it doesn't seem to me that all pornography is by definition misogynistic. So I think there's a huge area of there uh, that needs to be talked about that we're just not talking about. Um, the main literature in recent years in pornography in the last 20 some years um, is to my mind um, epitomized by and in many ways um, motivated by what is an extremely impressive paper written by Ray Langton in 1993 called speech acts and unspeakable acts in which she uses what she takes to be Austin's theory of speech acts. And actually, which I, what I think most of the profession takes to be Austin's theory of speech acts to try to show that pornography subordinates and silences women in a number of ways. And that spawned a very, very large literature of people, um, for the most part, tweaking um, what Langton had said in various ways. Some people arguing that it doesn't have an illocutionary force in this way, but it does in another way, or it has a different kind of illocutionary force than we thought it had, um, where illocutionary force is the power to do things um, in the right circumstances, not just to say things. Um, so to give um, an example, um, if I, um, the, the, that Langton gives in um, apartheid South Africa, if the government hangs a sign on a restroom or on a polling booth that says whites only, that's not just some words or announcing, guess what, you know, by the way, that you're only going to see white people using this thing. It's a, kind of discrimination against black people under those circumstances insofar as um, the, there is the, uh, an authority has um, posted that sign and the sign has the power to uh, um, deny blacks this right. Um, and I am sure that uh, lots of things have that kind of elocutionary power, potentially pornography um, as well. But what I argue is that there is a kind of cooked up picture of pornography that we get in this entire literature that doesn't really look at, um, at all at the, um, at the, at the phenomenon of pornography and that has essentially been politically effete. So in, since 1993, internet pornography has of course exploded. It's more popular than ever. 
Um, the porn culture has crept more and more into advertising culture so that more and more advertisements look porn, por- completely pornographic, um, where you're seeing, you know, naked people in uh, sexualized positions, etc. So um, I say to myself, people who really believe this must want to do something to change it. And yet um, I don't see that this literature has had any effect at all on the way the world is. Meanwhile, Catherine McKinnon, I think, who um, started, or I, should, I shouldn't say started, but who's probably the most prominent um, anti-pornography feminist, um, I think actually has had some effect on the world. She's a lawyer. Um, she's um, Her arguments are well known. I don't think she's had that much effect on pornography in the U.S., but she has elsewhere. And the idea that um, Langton... Um, was motivated to write her piece because um, people, some people had argued that McKinnon's view was incoherent and Langton saw herself as providing a philosophical justification for McKinnon's argument. And that is the thing that bothers me the most um, about this whole enterprise, which is that I don't understand why McKinnon's um, work needed a philosophical justification. I think philosophy should aspire to do more than simply bolster an argument or show that the argument is sound or uh, or valid. Um, sorry, go ahead. No, that's okay. that's okay. I was I was going to ask um, uh, how you think this situation might change. How how we could how you know people who are interested in these issues would not be politically effete, as you put it. Um, well, one of the things I've, I hope I'm doing in my own writing is trying to model a way of writing about these issues that moves in a different direction and whose job is to um, um, not to show that a certain argument is coherent or not. I realize how, how odd this must sound to some philosophers who may be listening to this, since in some ways that's a very uh, sort of, we just take for granted that that's one of the things, especially in analytic philosophy that we're supposed to be doing. Um, But I think what we ought to be doing is giving people reasons to um, reflect on their settled views. I think philosophy has an incredibly important role to play in the culture that um, for that is seen to be, if anything, ancillary to the important stuff we do in our theorizing and our journal articles. Um, I must tell you that I've been really um, confirmed in this view in the three-plus years that I've been serving as a dean at Tufts. Um, I'm really struck um, by the extent to which we are encouraged to, you know, get ourselves more and more rooted in various discussions that are of interest only to other philosophers um, without thinking about what it is that we're actually doing with our words. This is why Austin is very important to me. Um, And I can segue from that into saying, so what I argue in the main chapter that um, I have on Austin, um, which is called what is to be done with Austin to say that I do not read him as a so-called speech act theorist who simply said, oh, look, you know, words do things as well as mean things. They have not only a semantic um, uh, function, but they also have a pragmatic function. And that very reading of Austin marginalized him because the idea, I think, in philosophy of language, very crudely put, is 
Our job is to get the semantics right, and the pragmatics come after that. You've got to do the semantics first. My view, and you can ask me more about it if you want, I think Austin is much, much, much more radical in how to do things with words. He wasn't just saying that some speech acts uh, have the power to do things, as when I say, uh, you know, I, I now pronounce you uh, husband and wife, um, and you thereby marry two people under the right circumstances. Um, but also that I think Austin was saying um, our words couldn't mean anything except insofar as they do things. And all speech acts that are comprehensible do things. <laughs> and the doing things is the fundamental part of our talking with one another. Um, and I try to um, at least sketch out an argument for that view. That's, that's really um, critical for me. And I also think we should be thinking about what pornography does. And one of the things it does is allow a lot of people to have an orgasm or to uh, to have sexual pleasure by themselves or with other people too. Obviously, people watch porn together. Um, and if we don't talk about those things in an honest way, I don't think we're ever going to say anything about pornography that might be um, uh, the kind of thing that would um, attract a pornography user to thinking about what it is that they're doing as they use pornography. So, so let me just, um, to pick up on that, on that last, uh, last comment, I mean, Langton, as you noticed, as you noted, um, you know, her argument is that pornography, what it does, uh, you know, as, as illocutionary force, um, is it, it subordinates and it silences. Right. Um, and, uh, um, you just mentioned something else that it does, which doesn't get talked about and ought to be. Um, but you all, you, you kind of, um, you target that on the basis of, uh, one of the conditions, I think, for having pornography be able to do that is that somehow it has the authority to do so. I mean, you mentioned with the, the example of the whites only sign, it's put up there by the, political authorities and um your one of your criticisms is well you know what's the nature of this authority how could it how could it subordinate and silence you know as what it does um if it doesn't have this element of authority could you could you um uh explain that that argument so langton and others and poor ray langton because she She's a friend of mine. I I respect her um, um, as a philosopher, though I I really disagree with her approach on this issue, um, and I always feel bad about about using her all the time. But she's I think the most important person that's that's written about pornography this way. Um, so um, that said, um, the kind of authority that Langton uses um, in coming up with examples of how. Um, a speech can do things such as the apartheid example, which is her example that I just used are always, uh, are almost always a kind of political authority or a kind of vested authority, a kind of authority that is backed up by laws and military and all sorts of other things um, and threats of violence. If one doesn't comply and so forth, um, clearly pornography does not have that kind of authority. And what 
Langton is very fantastically careful philosopher. So she says that if we um, hypothesize or if we um, imagine that pornography does have a kind of cultural authority, then all of her arguments about what it does, namely subordinate and silence women, um, are supported. Um, and it seems to me that what's missing here is an analysis of the kind of, pornog- of authority that pornography enjoys. Of course, I'm not going to deny that pornography um, is ubiquitous um, and that it is something that huge numbers of kids, and I know this because I have four kids aged 19 to 24, learn about sex from, and the kids are exposed to it at very, very young ages. And so in that sense, it's I mean, I don't, do I want to say it's authoritative? I want to say they're not, people aren't hearing from anyone else. So they learn what pornography is through that experience. I mean, if you grow up in a household in which you have, um, if you grow up in a commune, in which there are only women, even if you're a boy child and women are doing everything, then you might grow up thinking, wow, women can do anything. They're really strong. But does that mean that somehow or other the, uh, that women are authoritative in your um, in your milieu. I kind of want to say no. They're just there, um, <laughs> and there's no question of authority. Um, I think that it is de facto the case that kids learn a lot about sex and pornography. And what I argue is the problem is not so much that women are treated as objects and used and hurt and broken and all the things that McKinnon um, says and that Langton agrees with in her. Um, confining what she calls pornography to that kind of pornography. Um, But I think the worst thing, I think there's a lot of pornography that isn't about uh, women being bruised and beaten and violated, though there is that pornography too. Um, But to me, the problem is that in almost all porn that I know of, um, everybody ends up in the, in the representation being reasonably happy um, not always. And there, there, there may be some very extreme ex- examples that it's not the case. But what happens is, you know, the recalcitrant woman, the woman who really doesn't want it, the woman who starts out getting raped ends up loving it. So what it teaches kids is once you have a sexual encounter, everybody loves it and everything goes well and everybody feels good and everybody has an orgasm. And people who've had a sexual uh, life know that that's not true. Um, I mean, what I worry about is that boys may not understand that not every girl has an orgasm just because you put something in her vagina. Um, and I think girls start to think that what makes boys like you is that you behave in such and such a way, etc. Um, and that is what bothers me most about pornography. And to me, the answer is not to mount philosophical arguments about why pornography is authoritative in the culture. In some sense, to the extent that we can make sense of that notion of authority, we already know that. What we ought to be doing is saying that we need to have other kinds of representations of uh, people uh, having sex and uh, in, in which that maybe are not even so sexy, actually. Um, and we ought to have more frank conversations with children about what having sex is like. Um, and we don't. We're still super duper squeamish about that. Um, so. I'm always coming at it from what are things really like on the ground in the world and is philosophy um are the gears of philosophy kind of connecting up with the gears of the real world? And I'm arguing in this case, I don't think so. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you quote, uh, you know, the famous, the famous quotation from justice, uh, 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 was it Potter Stewart? Potter Stewart. Yep. Yeah. 
where he says, you know, uh, you know porn when you see it, basically. Um, you know, which is a, you know, in a way, a terrible definition of porn as a definition. But on the other hand, there seems to be possibly some wide agreement on that. Um, yeah, what you what, you're, what you seem to be just be suggesting now is something like, well, there's there's good porn and there's bad porn, and you kind of know the good stuff when you see it. No, not really. I think that um, I think that what's bad about a lot of porn, even what some people might be inclined to call good porn, is that everybody ends up having an orgasm or everybody ends up kind of okay. Uh-huh. No, nope, you don't see people the next day thinking, "Oh my god, why did I do that?" Uh-huh. Uh, I thought I wanted to do that, and I actually even had an orgasm, but now I feel like, ugh, it's just entangling for me. In other words, we don't have realistic depictions. Everybody kind of has to learn about what it's like to have a sexual life um, on their own, or maybe by talking to their friends. It's very, and, and when they're very, very young now, because of the internet, they get a very different picture of what sex is like. And since we don't talk about things like the fact that it's probably more likely that a teenage boy will have discovered his penis and what it can do and how it feels good to touch it in systematic ways and be able to look at their own penis and so forth. And the same thing happens with a girl there who is, let me be clear that I'm talking about cisgendered people now. I don't mean to imply that transgender people's uh, people have um, uh, that I'm that that what I'm saying doesn't apply to transgender people. For transgender people, I think it's even more complex potentially, um, uh, and that pornography is even more problematic. Uh, mainstream pornography, at least um, heterosexual pornography and cisgender pornography. Um, but I think that you know. By the time that it's easy for boys not to understand that just having, as I said before, a penis and a vagina produces an orgasm in the girl. And I don't think there's a whole lot of pornography out there that's focusing on on showing people how to um, uh, how to communicate with a partner so that um, you are they they are able to discover for themselves what's pleasurable and you are able to um, make that happen as well. There's some pornography that does that, but very, very little. And this is true across people's sexual preferences, um, as far as I can tell. Well, would would that be pornography, though? I mean, it. it I mean, there's something. Uh, I don't know, essentially fictional or something. And and to say that it should be more realistic um, seems to say it it ought to be nonfiction. You know, which and I I kind of wonder. I mean, how. Showing somebody, you know, just for example, showing people not getting off, showing people regretting, uh, boy, I, I mean, I can't see why that would be a turn on. And if the goal of pornography is turning people on, then, geez, you know, real life is kind of a bummer. Good point. Um, and so let me be clearer about this. <laughs> I think um, you can have... Uh, something that's very, very sexy and fictionalized that shows people what it looks like to pay attention to what their partner needs and kinds of things that the partner might find pleasurable. And that does happen in some porn and fiction films often show things that resonate with us as real. We experience them as real, um, even though um, we know when we are not absorbed in them um, that, or we know on some level that they're not real. So I think it's perfectly fine for porn to be fiction and still do what I said it would do. What I was suggesting is that other kinds of media 
parents, teachers, sex educators should be far less prudish and far more. um, I mean, here I'm really thinking about at least, you know, North American culture. I think it's very much like this in Europe from talking to a lot of people in Europe. And I don't know a whole lot um, about how things go elsewhere in the world. But the idea is that people should should be able to teach children that sex is complex um, and it's um, it's it's as challenging as any other kind of um, human interaction that has any level of intimacy associated with it, such as friendship or being someone's colleague or whatever. And then in addition, it ha- is it has all of these kind of physiological bodily uh, complexities that make it um uh, both wonderful, but also um, something that one has to learn about as one as one proceeds. Um, and I, so I think that part doesn't have to be done through pornography at all. But I also don't see a problem with calling something pornographic just because even though it's um, something that is uh, not malevolent. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't reserve the word pornography to talk about stuff that's just malevolent, which by definition, um, most of the uh, porn literature does in philosophy. Okay, right. It's true. Um, let me let me just uh, turn to some of that the comments or critiques you make at the in the latter part of the book um, uh, about philosophy. So it's sort of a metaphilosophical um, perspective now. Um and you've said this earlier in the in the interview, but um, this idea that it is irrelevant, um, you know, I, you had a very nice image there of a helium balloon that starts, you know, grounded in some way, and then it kind of floats up into the into the stratosphere, and and then there's this nice little cottage industry that goes on. Um, uh, can you say something about your your critique there? Um, uh, you, you're bringing together a couple different ideas. One was uh, arrogance. You, you, you brought that concept up a lot in a number of ways. Um, you also questioned the idea about whether philosophy progresses, uh, which is also a very, uh, um, you know, has been a topic of discussion in the philosophical blogosphere recently. Um, and then, of course, coming back down to the um, the gender gap in philosophy, which is academically at least still pretty heavily white male, um, heterosexual to uh, profession. Yes, good. So um, let me start. Let me say one thing about the cottage industries doing their thing while the balloon floats higher and higher. <laughs> I don't have a problem per se with the cottage industries doing their thing while the balloon floats higher and higher. But if what a cottage industry is doing is, for example, um, saying something about um, uh, what knowledge consists in, where the word knowledge is being used in um, papers that really only philosophers um, and perhaps philosophy students can read, I would like people to measure the distance uh, that the balloon has gone um, and that therefore the distance between what they're doing and what the where the balloon is, which is to say, to ask yourself, are the examples that we are using here correctly tracking the way that we use these terms in our uh, lives? So, for example, I don't talk about this in the book, but in the case of knowledge, we don't talk about knowledge a lot in everyday lives. We t- we make knowledge claims. We use the word "I know." Um, 
often when we use the word I know, as Austin points out, what we are doing is kind of, and I talk about this a lot in the book, is kind of positioning ourselves with respect to the claim. We're staking ourselves on it. We're insisting on it. We're saying that um, we're, we're, we are asserting that we have a kind of authority. We're not necessarily saying um, anything about the, what constitutes some uh, variation on the theme of justified true belief or something like that. So that's, um, I think, important. Um, and just to go um, from there to the question about philosophical progress, one of the claims that I make is that philosophy, like almost every um, academic enterprise um, now, given that academic enterprises cannot happen uh, very readily, just simply uh, so if people want to support themselves outside the university, that we all sort of think of ourselves as scientists. And we write these journal articles, and the journal articles are mostly read by our peers and often by our immediate peers working in our same area, unless we are the kind of people whose papers everybody reads. Um, and so there's an unspoken idea that philosophy makes progress through that process um, and that we can somehow or other, I don't think everybody has a teleological view where we'll one day land upon the right conception of knowledge and we'll be done, but we proceed as though that's the case. Um, Timothy Williamson is somebody I talk about a lot in this book because in uh, within the last 10 years, he's written an enormous amount on philosophical progress. And one of the arguments that he makes is that philosophy hasn't made a lot of progress in terms of um, um, some theorems or some claims that we can all agree are true and are things that we can start from. Um, but he thinks that's the case because we still haven't really um, exploited the tools that um, the development of formal logical systems has and other things have given us over the last, say, 100 years. Um, and that the questions that philosophers wish to answer are very important questions, and we're getting closer and closer to being able to answer them. I argue, I won't give the argument here unless you want to know, that that's, there's no evidence that that's the case. I also argue that, that the examples that Williamson gives are, are about things that we don't have any interest in. So to me personally, the huge literature on vagueness is a function of the fact that philosophers of language, given the directions that philosophy of language has gone, have gone, have to solve that problem in order for everything else that they do to continue apace. And so that that's what's driving the interest in that literature. Um, I'll stop there. Um, I also talk about how um, um, philosophers, and this is an idea I get from Stanley Cavell, that philosophers are arrogating the authority of reason in the work that they do. We don't do very much empirical work. The empirical work that we do, for example, like my having lots and lots of conversations with young women about their sex experiences, um, that um, empirical work is not rigorous. It's not, some people do it. Experimental philosophers are saying, okay, good, we'll, we'll do this uh, rigorous empirical work. Um, uh, but a lot of us um, don't do that. Um, and what we do, for the most part, is arrogate the authority of reason to make claims about how things go. And, of course, we can do that in a fallibilist way and say, well, you know, maybe I'm doing this wrong. Here, philosophical community. 
Sorry, Carrie. Uh, um, here, philosophical uh, community, uh, you have a go at it. Um, but that kind of irrigation of authority can produce a kind of arrogance that I think has um, been a very big problem in our profession. I actually associated with the um, dearth of women in the profession. Um, I argue that the in the West, at least, the only other model we have besides irrigating authority in the context of a scientific community or scientific, as I like to say, community mm-hmm. of philosophers is to be uh, a, is the sort of great man model um, in which we declaim from the mountaintop how things are a la, say, Hegel. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, philosophers have argued that the great man model is very problematic in ways that I uh, that I think I don't even have to enumerate. But what I argue is that um, for some, for women, you know, men have had a big, big say, a big uh, declaiming from the mountaintop say for millennia um, in philosophy, or at least in modern philosophy for say the last 500 years. And women haven't. And I actually think women need to have a say. Um, uh, women need to be able to um, say, look, the way that men have been looking at the world or the way that uh, the world is uh, portrayed in authoritative texts is simply a mess. Uh, look at it this way. Um, I think that's probably a very unpopular thing to say, but I, I wonder whether simply trying to make the profession sort of sociologically um, congenial to women by people being very careful about sexual harassment and assault, though those things are absolutely critical and it's appalling that our profession has had so many um, instances of this that we all know, knew about even before they uh, thankfully have come to light and, and many cases are being addressed, um, that we also have to think that there's something about the way we do this discipline that is not um, congenial to people who have been traditionally excluded from philosophy. And that, of course, doesn't just include women, full stop. It includes, um, quite notably, in um, the U.S. and Canada, African-Americans of all kinds. And I'm very glad attention is being paid to that fact. And a number of African-American philosophers are pointing out that the preoccupations of white men are not their preoccupations and careful analytic argumentation may not be a way of getting those preoccupations on the table. So, um, yeah, that's, that's, those are the lines along which I think about these things. And I think that prog, Oh, one more thing. Um, I've argued this, um, in recent work that I've done, uh, since I wrote this book, um, I think progress is made. I think I, my understanding of what I'm doing as a philosopher that makes what I'm doing uh, valuable to the extent that it is valuable to the whatever little value or <laughs> it may have um, is um, making the enterprise of reflecting on one's settled views attractive to people who are not inclined to do so, which sometimes includes me. Um, that is to say in one's teaching, I, I, in one's writing for the popular press, which I think is a really great thing that philosophers have started to do in about the last five years. 
Um, the goal should be not to get it right, although we don't. Not, that's not to say we don't care about getting it right. Um, the goal is to, I think, um, motivate people into or, or give people a reason to think that's something I really would like to do. In other words, in this way, I see myself as uh, uh, harking back to what I take Socrates to have been doing, which is stopping people in the marketplace and asking them questions about things they really cared about and, and thought they knew about. Hopefully the philosopher's smugness, smugness is also challenged in that um, enterprise. And so it's, to me, it's, it's, we, the, we is really important in all eras, but we feel it more and more for lots of people to be thinking about how we're comporting ourselves and what we value and I think we have a social responsibility to um, those of us who are, are lucky enough to be secure in the profession, at least, to um, to play that role in the culture. And progress will happen. That's pro- that's a progress, philosophical progress of a certain sort. I would argue. Very good. Um, well, we are we are out of time. Our our progress here has has reached its end. Um, but before. Uh, before we hang up, I um, just wanted to ask, uh, you mentioned some recent work that you were doing. At this point, what is, what's next after this book? What, what are, you, are you following this up with, uh, you know, further thoughts on the same themes, or are you going to something different? That's a great question. Um, one of the things, I'm branching out in two new ways. There are some ways, and I'm Doing as I said, I'm doing this. I've been doing this uh, work on philosophical progress. That um, I don't know. I don't think that's enough to do a book. I think this book basically says some of what I wanted to say about that. Um, my husband Mark Richard and I, who started out very far apart from one <laughs> philosophically, are now starting to write some things together, and we're trying to figure out how to kind of. Uh, go the distance from one person's view to the other. We're sort of doing this experimentally. We're starting with the paper that we're giving together in January. So that's one direction where we're trying to have someone who's, you know, kind of classic analytic philosopher and someone like me who has a kind of odd background, um, see what we can produce. The other thing is the very last chapter of the book, um, uh, how to do things with pornography is a, so to speak, reading of the 2007 film Lars and the Real Girl. And I tossed it in there because Lars and the Real Girl is about a man who um, falls in love with a sex doll. And um, I absolutely love doing essays like that. I have a number of them that I've been stockpiling. I've published one other essay on Fight Club, but I think the next book will be a book in philosophy and film. Um, and, uh, and we'll try to show how um, these readings or these films can actually um, both explain our fascination, but not explain, help us understand a kind of fascination that the culture has with film, whether it's TV or films, uh, but also um, show the extent to which films get philosophy done. And in this way, of course, I'm, I am uh, finally feeling comfortable doing something like this after having a lot of uh, experience with Cavell and his work in that area. Very good. Well, we I think we need to stop now, but um, I want to thank you again for taking the time to talk with us, and it's been a it's been a really interesting conversation. Thank you so much, Carrie, and I'm thankful to people who are are listening to this. Um, it's a wonderful opportunity, and very grateful. 
Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye, Carrie. You've been listening to my interview with Nancy Bauer, Professor of Philosophy and Dean of Academic Affairs for Arts and Sciences at Tufts University. We've been talking about her new book, How to Do Things with Pornography, which just came out from Harvard University Press. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoy the podcast, and thank you for listening. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun, Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.